welcome to the Dark Side of Soul podcast. This is Joe by himself today. Sean is out celebrating his lovely daughter's birthday. Today, we're going to continue Expats of the Wild East, stories of strange people who have come to Korea over the years. Um, we are actively collecting more essays. So if you uh, live in Korea or have lived in Korea and you have a story to add, we would be happy to hear from you. All you need to do is go to darksideofsoul.com and click on the menu. This is Expats of the Wild East. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch with you. Uh, this These are really fun. And um, anyway... Since we are going to uh, be showing some of these, showing, um, playing, sharing some of these stories right now, I'm gonna I'm gonna front load everything, and I'm gonna do what we usually say at the end of the show, at the beginning, uh, and just just pointing out that if you do like our show, you can join our Patreon at Patreon.com/slash/DarkSideOfSoul. Uh, we also we would like to thank our top tier Patreons. Uh, Angel Earl, Joel Bonamini, Sharon Cullen, Devin Hifner, Minsuk Lee, Ryan Barkabal, Gabby Palomino, Steve Marsh, Chad Strauss, Michi Brewer, Sarah Ford, Jane Kang, Ron Chang, Mackenzie Moore, Hunter Winter, and Cecilia Lufgren Dumas. She keeps saying I'm mispronouncing her name. Swedish name, you know. Anyway, um, if you want to join them, uh, just starting just $5 a month, uh, you can get a lot of extra content. And if you want to be a top tier, it's $20 a month and you get a lot of extra stuff, including a little, little, little trinkets in the mail will send you. Um, we also run the dark side of soul ghost walk, which you can also find at darksideofsoul.com. Please book direct. <laughs> Unless you want to give TripAdvisor 20% of the ticket price. Um, Anyway, um, also, uh, also, we also have our comic book. You can get over at darksideofsoul.com, uh, at our comic book store. We have two volumes out. And, uh, we are announcing that on, uh, in July, let me look at, let me look at the calendar again because Sean keeps saying I'm doing it wrong. Um, July 22nd. If you're in Seoul, we are having our second, I think it's our second, uh, Summer Chills Horror Movie Fest over at Dice, Dice, Dice Comics Cafe, DCC. Um, go to our Facebook page, uh, Dark Side of Soul, and, uh, look for more details. Just be, just look around for more details. We were going to have about this. Uh, it was really fun last year. Um, Starts around seven o'clock. It's on a Saturday, and it's a good get together to watch some horror movies curated by the master Sean Sean Morrissey. Um, anyway, let's get started with a few tales from expats of the wild east. Have fun. Expats of the Wild East Essays by foreigners about weird foreigners from the old days Disclaimer Some essays could be offensive, crude, lewd, and not conform to today's social standards Feel free to bite me in the comments
children. This is a long one. Roger the Reporter by Mike Breen of Great Britain. Let me clear my throat. throat) Mm, There we go. Although for the past quarter century, the size of the foreign press corps at any time. Oh, by the way, Mike Breen, he's a he was he's a former journalist. Um, Still still is in Seoul. Although for the past quarter century, the size of the foreign press corps at any time in Korea has remained consistent at around 200 people. The number of Westerners in this group has always been relatively small. There have been fewer than a dozen Westerners at any one time. Cameras and notebooks in hand at everyone's idea, as everyone's idea of a foreign correspondent. Like any group, this one has had its colorful characters. One such was Roger, not his real name, a British stringer a, or part-time correspondent who was paid a monthly retainer by a British newspaper and boosted this income selling stories to other newspapers. Roger was in his late 20s in 1987 when he came to Seoul from Hong Kong. He seldom drank, never smoked, and pumped iron every day. He was short and prematurely bald and had a powerful physique. He was not a classically good-looking man, but he had an honesty and vulnerability that attracted women to mother and take care of him. Roger was a study in that simple adage that the key to stability lies in being able to control your money and your love life. He could do neither. On his first night in Korea, he proudly told fellow correspondents he engaged his first Korean prostitute. This event in the bushes by the Grand Hyatt Seoul and subsequent experience convinced Roger that Korea was special because of its energy and passion. The difference between prostitutes in Korea and elsewhere in Asia is that here they enjoy their work, he said. For the first few years in Korea, he lived in a downtown love motel. He became a regular at several of those barber shops located in the basements of downtown buildings, which offered what local papers referred to during occasional crackdowns as lewd services. The girls at one establishment viewed him as their best customer and invited him to join their annual picnic (laughs) to Chungpyeong Lake in Gyeonggi province. He declined, preferring to keep his habit underground. When his monthly retainer arrived, he would sometimes invite two professionals to share a suite with him for the weekend. He was not comfortable doing this, but found it hard to give up as long as he had the money. In the morning before checking out, I brushed my teeth. I looked in the mirror and I asked myself, who are you? He once confided. The women he dated were air hostesses whose jobs took them away from him all the time. Someone once said that the reason a man places a woman on a pedestal is to afford himself a better view of her skirt. But I suspect that in Roger's case, it was so that his own filthy hands would not touch them. He had, I am suggesting, a Madonna whore issue with women. The closest he allowed himself to get to one girl in nine months of dating was a peck on the cheek once as she was leaving the taxi. He did sleep with one older air hostess who he considered a slut because she had a boyfriend in London. This lady later wrote travel reports for a magazine, 
one of which included a topless photograph of herself somewhere in Africa with local tribeswomen. His most enduring relationship was a platonic affair with an airline employee who was separated from her husband and raising a daughter. Being Catholic, he did not, she did not plan to divorce. She and Roger would sleep side by side without touching one another. Money was a constant problem for Roger. He never earned more than three or four million won in any month, but he would throw it away erratically. Oh, he, yeah. One habit, for example, was to fly first class, which was how he picked up air hostesses. Thus, he was always broke. His strategy was to borrow from women. This he did in large amounts. He had left Hong Kong owing several thousand dollars to a girlfriend and was soon in debt to the platonic lady who eventually let him lodge for free in a small apartment she bought and furnished outside of Seoul. For two years from 1989, Roger and I had a stringing partnership. Our agreement was very simple. He and I already wrote for two newspapers each. We kept those separate and the payment for everything else we did regardless. We did, regardless of who wrote what or whose name went on it, was split 50-50. Roger was educated in the British form of journalism, which places entertainment ahead of accuracy. He had a keen eye for a story and could write well and quickly. He would pick up a lot of his stories from the local English-language papers and made the necessary calls to turn them into his own. One morning, I came into the office in the press in the Korea Press Center on Taepungyo, to find him typing excitedly. What's up? I asked. Oh, this is great, he said, chuckling away to himself. What? It says here that 25% of Korean riot police are nuts. Are you sure? Yeah, they're being treated. Not just stressed, they're actually mad. This was an interesting claim. At the time, the Molotov cocktail-wielding student protester and the tear-gassing riot policeman in his Darth Vader gear were everyone's image of Korea. I picked up the paper and took a closer look. Reading it through, I found that Roger had mixed up a statistic. Statistic. Roger, it says here that 25% of the riot police who request counseling are referred to psychiatrists, I said. But that's a fraction of a fraction. No, no, it doesn't, he said, his fingers racing furiously over the keys. It does. It worked out to at less than 1%. Roger was suddenly angry. I don't give a shit. I'm writing it anyway. But you can't. It's not true. Gradually, his accuracy meter took over, and he conceded and reworked the story accordingly. One Sunday afternoon, Roger was covering a protest outside Yonsei University when a woman set herself on fire. That night, he wrote a first-person account for a newspaper describing how the circle of onlookers watched impassively as she burned to death despite his own heroic efforts to beat out the flames. His claim that Korean students had coldly stood by created uproar in the Korean media. One news magazine even mocked him in a cartoon. The, the paper's foreign news editor began to doubt the, his reporter, but resisted demands for a retraction. Some weeks later, I was discussing this with the correspondent for TV Asahi, and who invited me to his office to view their footage. It showed Roger flailing at the flames with his shirt. Two Korean men in the crowd were doing the same. 
In the desperation of the moment, he failed to notice them. Roger was finally convinced that he had made a mistake. By that time, though, the matter had quieted down. Roger was a smart man and later edited an English-language business monthly in Korea, writing half the stories himself. But he was impetuous and self-destructive, his own worst PR agent. Like other journalists who didn't speak Korean, many of his ideas came about, came about what to cover from the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. But these newspapers had to be read extremely critically. Not only were they subject to government pressure, but local standards of reporting were less than thorough than required for international newspapers, which were serious enough to send correspondents overseas. But Roger developed a reputation for shameless lifting of stories from the local newspapers, not so much because he did so, but because he bragged about doing so. I did three stories today thanks to the Times and Herald, he might say, shocking the more scrupulous members of the press corps. Several Western reporters had come to Korea in the build-up to the 1988 Seoul Olympics. By the end of that year, the numbers were back to normal with Europeans or Americans only at the main news agencies and a few other outlets like the Financial Times, the Asian Wall Street Journal, the Far Eastern Economic Review, ABC News, and the Washington Times. The common wisdom back then was that Western papers could not handle more than two ongoing Asian stories. With, with democratization and the Olympics, South Korea had had a good run, but the Tiananmen Square massacre in June that year, with that, we fell off the map. I decided to stay, and as Pyongyang had lifted restrictions on European tourists, to focus on North-South relations. I made my first trip to North to the North in April 1989. Roger and I pulled our resources and wrote for whoever whoever we could. Our identity came from our respective newspapers, but our bread and butter came from a host of obscure business monthlies with titles like Asian Printing and Asian Property. Roger was very confident and energetic in securing commissions. One time, he took a call from a well-known finance publication. 2,000 words on BWs? He, once, he said into the handset. I see, he as he listened, he mouthed to me, what the fuck are BWs? No idea, I shrugged my shoulders. $500, Roger said into the phone. Okay, I can do that. What's the deadline? We discovered that BWs meant bonds with warrants. We never really understood, we never really did understand what they were, but three days later, the magazine had its story. In 1990, I went to North Korea with Ron McMillan, a photographer who had been on the trip the year before. He took, we took Roger with us, which turned out to be a mistake. North Korea is hard at the best of times. You soon get over the exhilaration of being a rare foreign visitor and start to get annoyed by the lies and restrictions. Ron was so witty that he made the experience a joy, but he had a low tolerance for nonsense and a quick temper. The chemistry with Roger was all wrong. His intolerance, for example, with fussy editors who asked us to rewrite something lost, lost us several commissions. He once flared up at me over something and later apologized, explaining that he had eaten chicken that day. Apparently, chicken set him off. 
He had joked that in North Korea, he planned to shake off the ubiquitous guides in search of the allegedly remote location where Pyongyang was reported to send physically handicapped citizens. He had already dubbed it the Dwarf Village. Once in the north, Roger didn't handle the frustration of dealing with the guides and one morning exploded angrily at one of them in the hotel lobby and stormed off to find the dwarves. Actually, we found that he only went to his room, but even even the missing of an ob- obligatory tourism schedule, we were supposed to be tourists and not journalists after all, caused problems which I had to smooth over. Ron had a similar explosion on the way back to Wonsan from Gungangsan, where when he disobeyed an instruction not to photograph the coastline for some national security reason. The North Korean driver swerved all over the empty road to prevent Ron from getting a steady picture of picture and Ron in the back seat. You know what? I think he's mixing Roger and Ron together. And Ron in the back seat flipped over and started screaming. When tempers cooled, the driver complained that in 25 years of taking foreigners around, he had never had such an unpleasant experience. The week seemed like a year. I was grateful that Roger didn't write up some story about his foiled quest to find the dwarf village, but I promised myself never to go to the north with him again. That summer provided me with the excuse I was looking for. In August 1990, Iraq invited Kuwait and a U.S.-led coalition began a buildup of troops to pressure the Iraqis to leave. As the likelihood of war increased, Roger started talking about going to Baghdad. When a reporter starts dreaming of getting on the front pages, he doesn't want a double byline. However, how about you? How about you have Iraq and I'll have North Korea? I suggested at a timely moment. He agreed. He went to Iraq and as the war drums started banging more loudly, we developed a work rhythm whereby he would call me and dictate the story which I would write up and send to our clients. We were filing up to 11 newspapers in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K., Australia, and New Zealand. When the bombing started in January 1991, Roger was in the Rashid Hotel with other correspondents. As they were herded into the basement shelter, he slipped behind a curtain, climbed out a window, and lowered himself down a 30-foot wall onto the street. He found a taxi and asked the driver to take him to the American consulate about five miles down, five miles away. U.S. diplomats had left the office sometime earlier but had given reporters the code to get in so that they could use a telephone for free. When the taxi driver not unreasonably said he would take him there when the bombing stopped, Roger decided to walk. Bombs are falling around him. En route, as he was going past what he later learned was the Air Force Intelligence Building, he was nabbed. His interrogators were convinced he was a downed pilot, presumably American, but his physique and facial appearance made them think made them think at first he was Israeli. They held him naked and blindfolded and knocked him around to make him confess. He said he got to the point where being shoved around by guards was better than the loneliness of his cell because one way or another it was human contact. They rejected the story, saying that no journalist would be capable of making the drop down the wall by the Rashid Hotel. The story of his disappearance came out after the second day of the war when all the other reporters, bar Peter Arnett of CNN and a Spaniard, were taken across the border to Jordan. 
Another soul based reporter there, Don Kirk, who had been his roommate in Baghdad, appeared on TV from Amman showing Roger's passport and other belongings. I was convinced Roger had been killed in the bombing, but tried to keep his parents and other clients' hopes up. Finally, after a week, his captors dumped him back at the Rashid Hotel. For competitive reasons, Arnett refused to allow him to use his CNN satellite phone, but he finally relented and Roger made a brief call to his parents to let him know he was okay. At the end of that year, I lost my budget for the office in the Korea Press Center and we naturally parted ways. The following year, he and two colleagues asked my advice about how to get to North Korea. They followed my suggestion of applying at the North Korean embassy in Beijing, but their visa applications were denied. Just after this, my newspaper asked me to join the editor on a trip. I was sworn to secrecy on this and told no one. We secured the second only Western press interview with the dictator Kim Il-sung. Roger was convinced I had deliberately sent him off in the wrong direction in order to secure my own scoop. He didn't speak to me for a year. This ended one afternoon in the Seoul Foreign Correspondence Club when I walked in, saw him there, and said, Hi, Roger. He got to leave, but turned around and said, Oh, fuck it, and came over and gave me a hug. Roger's keen eye led to some fine contributions to the annals of foreign reporting on Korea. It was he, for example, who dubbed the, dubbed the serial kipper... It was he, for example, that dubbed the serial killer operating in Hwasong in Gyeonggi province the Paddy Field Rapist. And a story on the people who made a living off the city's Nanjido garbage dump a decade before it was greened and turned into the World, Court, World Cup Park, he coined the concept Scavenger City. But his best-known effort was in publicizing the delicate matter of dog-eating. His stories in the Daily Telegraph, a conservative and quite serious British newspaper, prompted that country's tabloids to welcome then-President Noteu on his state visit to London with headlines warning the Queen, Ma'am, lock up the corgis, screamed the son in a reference to the Queen's two beloved pets. Korean officials were furious and complained directly about Roger to the Telegraph. When Kim Yong-sun became president in 1994, Roger got a commission from a publisher to write a critical biography. One newspaper story he wrote about Kim, a Protestant, had allegedly ordered the removal of a Buddhist artifact from the Blue House grounds, upset the authorities. By this time, Roger was in a relationship with a woman who, who was estranged from her husband. One time they traveled together to Tokyo to interview a Japanese couple who were said to have raised a girl allegedly fathered by Kim when his husband, when his girlfriend's husband, who thought she was on a business trip, received a mysterious call saying that his wife was checking up with a foreigner in a hotel. When they returned to Seoul, Roger found his home had been mysteriously burgled. In the end, the publisher rejected the manuscript. By this time, Roger was writing for an Australian newspaper. Here, he finally had an editor who appreciated his talent and could handle his idiosyncrasies, and he knew that, under the chaotic exterior, beat a heart of gold. Thus bolstered, Roger decided to apply for a journalist visa for the new, to be the newspaper's sole correspondent. For the previous seven years, he had been operating illegally and tax-free on a tourist visa. The consulate in Australia, where he applied, presumably under instructions from Seoul, 
delayed his approval for several months to the point that Roger declared that he was being expelled from Korea. Technically, this was not the case, as he could have returned as usual on a tourist visa. But his editor stood by his claim and sent him to Taiwan. Taiwan. There, he took to frequenting discos popular with locally employed Filipina maids. The last time I saw him, he had three on the go. Unaware of the others, each thought they were his exclusive girlfriend and would come to his home on their day off to clean, do the laundry, and provide other services. Sometime later, Roger moved to Bangkok. Korea had left a bad taste in his mouth, and he never visited again. The foreign press here missed him for a while, and then we began to hear from correspondents who visited Korea from Taipei and Bangkok stories that reassured us that the legend lived on. Michael Breen, Great Britain. Greetings, this is called Circus of Sutterfuse by Nicholas Johnson, USA. Back in 1996, Anton, Allen, and Davy were three Iranians pretending to be Americans to finagle lucrative jobs teaching English. Besides myself, they were the only other non-Korean instructors at my hagwon in Gongju, near Taejeon, whose only claim to fame was as the capital of the ancient Baekje dynasty. I loved Korea, but Gongju was mostly a shithole. I eventually fled from it in the middle of the night on a bus to Seoul because the Wonjung or school director was a sword who would call you to work on the weekends, steal your passport, cut your pay, and hire three Iranians pretending to be Americans as her main staff. Regardless of their dubious qualifications to instruct in the English language, I enjoyed working with the Iranians. They were energetic, generous, and completely brazen. They had all duped Wonjung-nim, who spoke not a word of English, into believing that they were fluent. So each day at the school was a circus of Sutterfuge. The Korean instructors, Mr. Park and Mr. Park, seemed to be occasionally suspicious of these three Americans and would grill them in the merciless yet indirect and polite way that makes Koreans so formidable in business. When Wan Jung-nim and Mr. Park introduced me to Davey, his real name I would later learn to be my Jeep in the school office, he wore a strange smile which I couldn't read. He said he was from Florida. I asked where. He said Miami. Uh, he asked if I liked the Miami Dolphins. I said I didn't care about football. He had an unplaceable accent, but we continued to discuss American, common American interests as Won Jung-nim and Mr. Park looked on with joy at two of their American employees speaking gold. Later, when David decided he could trust me, he told me the truth, that he was an Iranian pretending to be American and didn't know how didn't know perfect English. He had had to research and prepare information for such an encounter with a real American and had chosen Miami because he'd seen pictures of beaches and palm trees there that reminded him of his, of his favorite show, Baywatch. He thought for sure that I was on to him at, at the office. Thus the smile. I told him he had done very well. 
I justified my gullibility to him by saying that a lot of Americans speak with accents and some don't speak English at all. My acceptance of him as an American boosted his confidence and also made him look good in the eyes of his employers. In any case, he was not from Miami and he didn't care about football either. Of the three Iranians, Davies spoke the best English. With his job secured, he then found jobs for the other two. Anton was tall and sturdy and had come to Kungju to lay low from the Seoul police for a while. Business is not good in Seoul, you know, because he had helped Won Jung Nim out a few years ago in some shadowy enterprise. She had an inexplicable weakness for him and hired to hired him to teach English. He spoke Turkish, Japanese, Persian, and Korean fluently, but barely, but barely any English. That made teaching classes very difficult for him. Anton had an American flag printed polo shirt and always wore what looked like a high school letterman's jacket, except that it says something about international fashion on the back. He had a thick poof of hair on top and from the temples down his head was shaved. His method for defending himself against more than three people. Three is good, you know, I like. Was to break a bottle over his own head and start screaming. When the hostile tribe, Thai people I don't like, heard his manic ranting and saw the blood trickling down his face, they figured they had better things to do. For some reason I don't understand at all, Anton took me and made me dinner every night at the apartment Wanjang Nim provided for us. And because he spoke Korean, he was also my diplomat in all negotiations with Wanjang Nim, who couldn't say no to him. He convinced her to pay me what was agreed in my contract and to return my passport, which she had stolen from me. Anton was always paying, cooking, cleaning, and in an infectiously energetic mood. He oozed stability and was extremely self-confident. His eyes were like a cow's and showed no signs of intelligence, but this was deceptive because he had a great capacity for quickly adopting what was necessary in any given situation. His English was awful, but I had better conversations with him than with students who had studied the language for 10 years. He proved to me that there are only a handful of the keywords of the cosmos. Eat, talk, tell, slash told, go, do, fuck, slash fucking, need, as in need fucking, crazy, good, bad, angry, give, money, shit, like, don't like, Yes and no. I go to Seoul, you know. It's good for fucking. I talking to Wan Jung Nim. I'm very angry, you know. I needn't hear. I go to Seoul. It's good for fucking. Business good, Seoul. And no problem for fucking. Anton had been in the Iran-Iraq war for three years. Yes, I kill, he said, as he mimicked using a machine gun. Alan, the third Iranian, had served for two years and was shot in the knee. Anton and Alan both left their country for fear of being jailed for no reason but their youth by the Iranian government. They both bought passports on the black market and got the hell out of Dodge. Alan left on an Irish passport and Anton on a Turkish passport. Iranian passports are not appreciated in many countries. India and Singapore allow Iranians to enter, so Alan first flew to India and then Singapore. 
He left Singapore with his Irish passport and traveled all around Asia collecting short-term departure and arrival stamps in order to prove his validity as an Irish tourist. He stayed in Japan a few years and claims to be claims he made a huge wad of money working in a laundromat. He left and tried to come back and got caught and sent back to Singapore. He was in Korea trying to make enough money to get back to Japan where he could make a load of cash. He didn't have a valid passport, so he needed to save $5,000 to pay for an illegal boat ride to Japan from Busan. Anton has spent a lot of time in Turkey, Japan, and Korea, and he fought for three years. I am crazy now, you know, he said, something in Persian, which is translated to me by Alan as, I spent some time in a mental hospital after the war. Anton continued, all Iranians are crazy. We have a good heart. Iranians also have brass balls. Anton could barely speak English, yet was supposed to teach people who knew English better than him. Of course, this was difficult and daunting for him, and he complained to me daily, but one day it was more than he could take. Remember that he spoke fluent Korean. This meant that he could get along with the students fabulously because of his charm, but that as an English teacher, he arose a bit of suspicion. He was teaching the sex, he was teaching the, teaching the textbook side by side. And one of the exercises included a reference to Little Red Riding Hood. One of the students asked him what Little Red Riding Hood meant. He did a rough calculation in his head and tried to translate the English into Korean literally. In his way, he realized it was a cultural reference and that he didn't have a chance in hell of figuring it out. He got angry and stood up. He pointed at each of the students and screamed, Do you can? Do you can? Do you can? The Koreans can't, didn't quite understand what he was saying, but eventually realized that they weren't really concerned with disrupting the placid nature of their education by asking too many questions. Nicholas Johnson, USA. <laughs> All right, this is called My Wife, the Streetwalker by Sean Moore, USA. This is done like a newspaper article. Seoul, June 24th, 1977. Peace Corps volunteer Patty McKenna and his newly betrothed bride, Misuk Che Ni McKenna, were hauled into the police box on the main street of Itaewon at approximately 8.30 p.m. last Saturday night. Together with USAID, U.S. Agency for International Development, employee, himself a former Peace Corps volunteer, the three had been out for a cheap evening of low-priced beers and dancing at one of the notorious nightclubs with no cover charge, as the overhead is largely financed over beds in nearby brothels. Claiming innocence and not reading the English vernacular newspapers at their Peace Corps site in Suwon, the U.S.-Korean couple said that they were not aware that there had been warnings made to the foreign community that there would be a crackdown on streetwalkers operating without their health cards, a euphemism for venereal disease checkup certificates. As the three visitors to Seoul rounded the corner by the fire station, you know where that is, a policeman stepped forward and asked the young woman for her health certificate. Befuddled, she asked, what health certificate? The policeman then firmly, yet politely, asked for her national ID card. Upon producing it, 
The policeman took it and told her to follow him. The three young people were then marched into the police station to be met by an English-speaking police sergeant. The sergeant looked mildly, mildly amused by the three's protests of the woman's innocence, stressing that she was married to Mr. McKenna. Leaning forward from behind the front desk, the sergeant asked for proof in the form of a marriage certificate. Mr. McKenna replied that, like most people, they didn't go around carrying their marriage certificates, to which the policeman replied he doubted that, in fact, the two were married. At this point, the U.S. aid worker, who had a decent command of Korean, started arguing on the couple's behalf. Mr. McKenna remarked that this whole incident was ridiculous and threatened to raise the matter with the U.S. Embassy. The sergeant responded that he doubted the whole alibi since he would never take his wife to such a sleazy entertainment district. Mr. McKenna responded by saying that at least he was there with his wife and insinuated he was more morally correct than the sergeant who must undoubtedly go to such places without his wife. By this time, Mrs. McKenna was in tears of humiliation. The debate went on for a full two hours. Finally impressed by the unwavering protests of innocence and indignation of false accusations, the sergeant came to the conclusion that the whole matter was becoming more bother than it was worth. He said that the three, including Mrs. McKenna, may leave. Upon hearing these words, a foreign man in his mid-fifties, sitting off to the side with a girl in her teens, ventured hopefully that they too were in fact married. Resisting the temptation to bloody the man's nose, Mr. McKenna led his wife and friend out into the cool midnight air. He was reported to have remarked that they had not had so much entertainment in quite some time, and certainly it would be a night to remember. Sean Moore, USA. Who's that handsome young man over there? Hmm. This one is The Conversation Teacher by John Buxay, USA. A few years ago, I was teaching at a small private university in Busan. They had just hired a new English conversation teacher. And when I walked into the department office one afternoon to find an unfamiliar, unfamiliar Western man sitting at the reception desk bent over some official papers, I figured he must be the new guy. Hi, I'm said. I'm John. You must be the new teacher. He looked up from the form he was fi filling out. I'm Roger, he said. Are you from Canada? He asked hopefully, and I was struck by the feeling that he didn't really want to know where I was from, but that he wanted to know that I was from Canada. No, I'm from the States, I said almost apologetically. Oh, said Roger. He half turned away, visibly deflated. After a pause of several seconds, he mastered his disappointment and asked, which state? He turned fully around to look squarely at me. Roger looked to be 40-something. I could see that he had a large round belly, though overall he wasn't what I would call fat. He had curly black hair and a dark beard that were not, that were not exactly unkempt, but gave the impression of being only very tenuously under his direct control. 
Based on his unchanging outfit for the next two years, I'm pretty certain that he was wearing the same damn sweater vest and worn trousers that made him look like some kind of overgrown hobbit librarian. He wore extremely thick glasses, which shrank his eyes into cartoonish specks, and he had a large gap between his two front teeth. Korean schools are often criticized for wanting to hire only pretty young faces. I hate to say it, but I couldn't help thinking that Roger must have had one motherfucker of a resume. I'm from New York, I said. Oh, said Roger, with the air of a kid who had just been told that dinner will be boiled rat turds again. There followed an awkward pause longer than the first. With those two bits of information, Roger seemed to have completely satisfied his curiosity about me. Are you from Canada? I asked. Roger grunted affirmatively. Hmm. Whereabouts? He said, Saskatoon. But from his tone, I could, I felt that if he could have somehow conveyed that information with another grunt, he would have. Here, I made a grave mistake. My knowledge of Canadian geography is admittedly spotty. But I can name all the provinces and territories, and I even know that Saskatoon is in Saskatchewan. But for some reason, I had a pearly-tined brain fart and said, Oh, Saskatoon, isn't that in Manitoba? Nope, said Roger. I waited a moment for a correction. It didn't come. Um, Alberta? I asked. Nope, said Roger, again offering no help. He was now looking at me intently, clearly enjoying my growing discomfort, perhaps relishing the experience of catching out yet another damn yank who didn't know or care a rat's ass about Canada. Now I was stuck. Roger wanted me to keep guessing. While I wrecked my brains for the place Saskatchewan was hiding, he sat with a look of pleased expectation and simply waited silently for my next incorrect guess. What started as a simple trip to the secretary's office for some staples was turning into a game of let's humiliate the ignorant American. Well, I know it's not in BC, I said, not intending to, not intending that to be a guess, but to simply name another Western province just to show him I knew something about Canadian geography. Roger was enjoying this way too much to simply tell me where he was from. I'll give you a hint, he said. It's north of Montana. Well, that fucking helps, I thought. I've never been to Montana. I knew it bordered Canada, but I'd be damned if I knew which province. I still couldn't get the word Saskatchewan out. It was hard to tell whether Roger was squinting or smiling, but he did seem pleased at his little victory. It's Saskatchewan, he said. Of course, Saskatchewan, I said. Of course, of course, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. I knew that. You know, most Americans don't even know where Montana is, Roger noted. It's possible that he thought that by making a comment like that, he was being diplomatic. But I took it to be another screaming indication of his total inability to engage in civil conversation with another human. I've been talking to him for a minute, maybe two, in that short time we had succeeded in making me want to avoid all contact with him forever. Yeah, I said, anyway, hey, Roger, um, it was nice to meet you. I lied, but because really.
What else can you say sometimes? I have to get back to my office. See you around. I grab some staples and beat it out of the office, leaving Roger to get down to the difficult business of teaching English conversation. John Buxay, USA. Let's do this. This is named Brenda by Mimi Kim, USA. I was living in Seoul for the second time in the fall of 1998 when I met Brenda through one of my Korean roommates. She had come to Seoul to teach English like many other Korean Americans such as myself. It was the first time she had been back to Korea since she was adopted with her older brother to Minnesota when they were both small and raised on a farm. Brenda looked and sounded like she was 10 years younger than her 27 years, with wide, dark brown eyes and a Mickey Mouse voice. She was something of a motor mouth, which I enjoyed, but I found my mind wandering whenever we talked. That first humid September evening I met Brenda, I was hanging around Itaewon outside of one of the gay bars on Homo Hill, Trance, the one that had drag shows on Friday and Saturday nights. I was a regular clubber there and always noticed when another woman showed up in the sea of buff, half-naked Korean men in American military. She was short and thin but athletic and wore a tasteful, if not somewhat conservative, outfit of preppy jeans and a tailored baby blue short-sleeved shirt with buttons on the lapels. I was not sure if she was gay since she somehow fell in between the distinct, if not rigid, Korean lesbian roles of butch and femme, looking boyish in her Converse sneakers and no makeup, but feminine hiding behind her long bangs. She had been dragged along with my roommate and we stood in a circle talking outside the smoky bar. She was enthusiastically packing her box of this a Korean brand of cigarettes that cost no more than a U.S. dollar at a time. I waited for her to light up to mooch one for myself. You know, before I came to Korea, she said, I never smoked in my life. I don't really enjoy it much, but it's something that I really feel compelled to do. I nodded, somehow understanding that it was also the case for me. Smoking was a kind of rebellious act for young women in Korea. A rejection of the pressure to conform to the for those of us who had grown up in the States. A small effort to empower yourself in a completely unhealthy way. The only people who smoked outside in the open were men. Proper women needed to be hidden away in their home, cafe, or restaurant, and it was considered rude for us to smoke on the street. The only women who might smoke on the street were the kind of the night. Smoking outside always drew the attention of Korean nationals who would not always know we were not real Koreans. I relished the attention in a sick way, knowing that it was a provocation. As soon as Brenda finished the last drag of her cigarette, she anxiously lit another one, despite nearly coughing up a lung. Pretty hardcore for someone who had just started smoking, I thought. As the night drew to an end at around 6 in the morning, I was even more surprised to hear that Brenda had smoked almost all of the pack she had just bought early that evening. I did not see Brenda for a few weeks after that. 
I heard from my roommate that she had started dating a femme but older Korean woman, Hisuk, who had picked her up in Lesbos, a ladies' bar in Shinton. Apparently, once Hisuk found out Brenda was American, she asked her to dance immediately. We were to meet them at Club Labris in Hongdae on a Friday night. Brenda and Hisuk had already staked out a table when we arrived. Hisuk was tall and voluptuous, towering over everyone with a push-up bra and too much makeup. She reminded me of a drag queen. She was brash and seemed a bit of a Najima, in the sense that her voice was shrill and was strangely mothering to Brenda. The music was so loud and so bad that after a while we gave up trying to talk to each other and just amused ourselves by drinking cocktails and girl-watching. I secretly watched Brenda and Hisuk out of the corner of my eye. They were sitting nearly on top of each other, giggling and whispering in each other's ears, although I'm not sure what, since Brenda spoke no Korean and Hisuk's English ability was questionable. However, they seemed to have an exceedingly healthy sexual relationship, as evidenced by their petting and pawing at each other at the club, and later, surprisingly, I would see in public. Korea was not known for being so sympathetic or accepting of homosexuality, and most of the queer folks I knew were at least partially closeted to their families, colleagues, and friends. Perhaps since many friendships in Korea between women involved holding hands and close contact, they figured people would never guess. As their relationship developed into an intimate and monogamous one, I felt more and more uncomfortable hanging out with them both. Hisuk proved to be extremely jealous and possessive of Brenda, and while I had no desire to date Brenda, I felt as though I was always under surveillance. Furthermore, over the year we were acquaintances, Brenda started making subtle but noticeable adjustments in her appearance and behavior. She cut her hair particularly short in a severe pixie style and started drinking more excessively. She continued to chain smoke, which gave her a rather unpleasant odor. Gone was the seemingly innocent and sweet tomboyish farm girl I fondly remembered. Here to stay was the butch bull dyke with an Ajima girlfriend who, as luck would have it, improved her English in a jiffy. One evening, Brenda called me to meet her in, a Hongdae, in Hongdae for a drink. I hesitated since the last couple of times we drunk together, we, she tried to pick a fight with some Ajishis on the street. A group of drunkards had been gawking at her for too long, in astonishment that she was smoking on the street. She became irate and screamed at them in Korean obscenities. Thank goodness the men either didn't understand her bad American accent or were too drunk to care. Either way, we pulled her back from running after them and she spit in their direction instead. At any rate, in the end I gave in since I didn't have anything else planned. When I arrived, she introduced me to her new friend, Jihyun, a Korean national who dressed and looked like a real man, not a, like a girl playing dress-up like Brenda did. When I'd first met Brenda, she looked attractively androgynous, but now she seemed like she was trying too hard to be on the masculine side of the Korean lesbian line. For whatever reason, I didn't buy it. That evening, Hisuk could not come out, and I was relieved not to have to endure her hawk-like glares. Jian's English was not great, but again, the music was blaring so loud, it didn't really seem to matter. We drank beer and smoked cigarettes. 
opting out of dancing with the femmes on the dance floor. At around midnight, I needed to leave soon and excuse myself to go to the bathroom. When I came back to the table, I was surprised and amused to find Brenda and Jihyun in a tight embrace with their faces smashed together. I stood silent and frozen until Brenda noticed me standing there and broke the kiss. Both looked at me like I caught them with their hands in the cookie jar, but didn't seem necessarily ashamed. Hey, sometimes it happens, Brenda said haughtily. I don't care one way or another. I replied, it's none of my business. Soon after, I lost touch with Brenda. I later heard through the queer Kyopo grapevine that Brenda had apparently gotten into a vicious fist fight with Hisuk, resulting in one of them getting a concussion, and although I never found out who, I suspected it to be Hisuk since Brenda was rumored to have a temper like nobody's business. Ironically, I also heard that they had decided to stay together. I wondered if it had to do with Jihyun. Infidelity was raging in the community, and somehow word always got back one way or another. As a consequence, I started to wonder if Brenda had always been so violent, and I just never noticed it. Fooled by her high-pitched voice and gentle Midwestern charm, or perhaps it was Brenda's fuck-you response to a culture that can be particularly brutal on overseas adoptees and kyopos who go to Korea in search of acceptance and or identity. Funny, after I left Korea, I quit smoking for good and started wearing high heels. Mimi Kim, USA. The Limits of Sigehua by Zane Ivy, USA. It was the end of the decade of the 90s, an age of segyehua, globalization, as the administration of Kim Yong-sam termed it, a time for Korea to embrace the world. It was also a time when South Korea was being pressured due to financial crisis to westernize its economic accountability. The foreign language policy of Korea was being revamped so that even elementary schools were required to begin teaching English as a foreign language. As a result, there was the need to upgrade both the English language skills of elementary school teachers throughout the country and their abilities to teach that language in their classrooms. At the time, I happened to have my own IMF-era-based financial crisis going on due to the devaluation of the Korean won against the dollar. For me, the economic crisis coincided with the personal crash related to the dissolution of my marriage of more than a decade and the associated requirement of make uh, to make monthly child support payments that were quickly becoming equivalent to my monthly income in Korea. I had been working in Daegu, but was forced to move up, both figuratively and geographically, to Seoul to take a job where I can make enough money to make my payments and to actually have enough left over to eat and replace my socks as peepholes developed in the toe in the toes. And so I took a job, luckily, with a well-known private Korean company in Seoul that was engaged in EFL, English as a Foreign Language, Materials, Development, and Teacher Training. They were trying to help Korea's public education system meet the newly delineated goals of the government's Ministry of Education to upgrade English language instruction. In many ways, it was a good job. Not much class time, the chance to do some research in language learning and teaching, 
and to do some writing related to my educational background, TESOL. It also paid pretty well. The primary downside, at least the one most salient at the beginning, was the requirement to dress and keep office hours like a businessman, a requirement that not many of us globetrotting MAs and TESOL felt particularly attracted to, since not a few of us got into post-secondary post education to get away from that whole suit-and-tie businessman scheme. Oh well. The team I worked with was friendly enough. It was with its own little bit of segehua, in a sense, with employees who were native Koreans and a handful of us who were from the Americas. My immediate boss was originally from Canada and had come over to Korea after having lived and worked in Poland for a number of years. He was in his late 40s, smart and well-read, a sometime writer of fiction, and an evening-time fitness freak. He was fun to talk with, cosmopolitan and outlook and witty. It was interesting to see him adjust to Korea after a sojourn in Europe and to observe his cultural flexibility. Other guys of his age and experience might have been rather upset to learn, as he did, that his 20-year-old Polish partner, as he referred to her, was only a high school with only a high school diploma and a mediocre command of spoken English, could make more than twice his incoming teaching income. Oh, sorry, man. <laughs> really? With only a high school diploma and a mediocre command of spoken English, can make more than twice his income teaching English privately and illegally in Seoul. He quickly figured out that here in Korea, long blonde hair, blue eyes, long legs, and a decent figure trumped an MA and years of university-level teaching experience. No big deal. Life is full of inherent contradictions, he observed from his well-traveled and rather wry philosophical perspective. His boss, and the head of the whole department, was a Hispanic-American guy with family roots in both Mexico and California. Like many of these old Californian Hispanics, he was proud of his lineage going back to old Mexico and stretching across to Spain, but unlike some of his generation, was not a card-carrying follower of Guillermo Bonfil Batalla or other forms of indigenissimo. He was proud of his roots in Indian America as well. His name was Romero, and he was in his early 60s. He had a PhD in education and an exemplary resume, including some time spent working in an administrative capacity for the U.S. Department of Education. He was tall for your average Hispanic guy, dressed sharp with a unique way of arranging the knot in his tie that had developed out of his experience working on a special team back in Washington, and had aged well, something like a Latin Sean Connery might spring to mind upon first meeting him. He was full of energy, loved to go out dining and dancing and some of the nicer at some of the nicer hotels in Seoul after work, and was a great conversationalist. He also, so I hear, managed to acquire a pretty extensive Korean porn collection after a couple of months, which was also long enough for him to figure out which side of the sidewalk to walk on, the left, to avoid having Korean guys slam into you so often. Little did he expect, though, nor did the rest of us, how his habits on other fronts would result in other cultural collisions. I liked Romero. He was a very positive guy to work for. What he lacked in experience with Asian culture, he made up for in attitude and organization skills. He had no problem, as some 
as some with other accomplishment might with asking for our opinions and input on the needs of the program and the whole English education in the context of Korea situation. And like I've already mentioned, he was interested in Korea and Korean people, but maybe a little too interested, at least from the perspective of our employer. The trouble started with a 36-year-old Korean divorcee he met while one of his hotel rooms, hanging out after a good dinner and listening to the live music provided by a band from the Philippines. Rock and roll. Attraction happens. It happens despite age and culture gaps and maybe as the premier experimentalist brujo of dangerous border crossings, Guillermo Gomez-Pena has observed the other as sexy, perhaps because of these differences. That was a mouthful. In cosmic terms, the real problem was actually initiated by neither Romero nor his amante Coriana, but rather started with our employer's attitude to Romero hanging out with her. The company apparently got a call from the security guard at Romero's company leased apartments informing the company that he had been having a young Korean girl staying over at his apartment. That is, not just staying over, but staying overnight. Immediately, things started to turn to Segehua Kaka. The Dong hit the Sumpungi, as it were. The Sumpungi, Sumpungi. Reading this old Anglization, uh, Romanization. The company president had and vice president together asked, or rather demanded, that Romero break off the relationship and write a letter of apology. I guess from their exalted position up there at the top of the company pyramid, it had something to do with what they considered to be an inappropriate romance. Or maybe it was just the jealousy kicking in. I don't I don't think the company president and his sidekick were actually too distant in age from Romero himself. Or maybe it was just the fact that the sex wasn't happening within the proper context. You know, a nice room salon or something while he was unwinding from the pressures of administrative duties with other employees. Whatever the case, and who knows what strange cognitive and emotional dust piles up in the corners of narrow and dark little minds, they apparently felt it was their right, perhaps duty, to put an end to what they considered an outrage. Now, Romero, not quite in touch with his with with Korean think, had a lot of questions for us. He didn't think it was too cool of the company to make these demands. What business of theirs to dig in but business was it of theirs to dig into his private life, much less his sex life, as long as it was on his own time and there wasn't anything he'd done that was either illegal or particularly immoral or unethical, at least from his perspective. She was a grown woman, for God's sake, and it wasn't like she was either his student or business subordinate. She wasn't, she wasn't exactly a 19-year-old virgin or anything. We gave him our advice, and he made his decision. Contrary to our hopes, he buckled. He wrote a letter of apology and said he would no longer entertain her with his video collection overnight. The rest of us weren't particularly happy about this decision. I think we were probably all hoping he'd stick to his guns a bit more and the desire that the whole incident wouldn't set a precedent that might affect the rest of us and our personal lives. I'm sure you can figure it out. 
none of us foreign workers were were exactly sexually abstinent. Most of us were absolutely promiscuous, legally and ethically, and we're doing our best to break down the walls between our varied cultures in that field of human experience as well. A deep sigihua, as it were. At least that's the way we saw it. The letter wasn't good enough. In fact, the president decided to ask for his resignation. Now, whether in fact this was because he was having an alleged sexual relationship with a 36-year-old Korean girl, or whether they were just using that accusation as a way to bump a middle middle aged manager who bump yeah bump a middle aged manager who commanded a pretty hefty yearly salary who knows at any rate they wanted him out the rest of us again were adamant that he should fight the man and perhaps go out and engage a good lawyer to represent him in a wrongful dismissal case against our company it's not good precedent precedent all of us seem to be in agreement but alas, it didn't happen. I don't see the. I don't need this shit. He exclaimed. I can go back to the U.S. and make just as much anyway. That was probably true in his case, and he could take his Korean girlfriend with him if he wanted, and he did. But I guess it was a good decision, good lesson for all of us. We learned that while Koreans might be receiving a lot of government-inspired pressure to embrace Segehua there seemed to be a limit to how much embracing that permitted, if you wanted to keep your job at least. Zane Ivy, USA. The Quality of a Madam's Mercy by Donald Kirk, USA. The battles between R and his Korean wife were legendary, at least to hear R tell him about them tell about them if she wasn't screaming at him for staying out late working too hard drinking and partying she was brandishing a kitchen knife at him locking him out of his apartment or stopping out in the kind of rage that those who've had too much to do with korean women of a certain age and era will will appreciate ours friends having heard only his side of the story could only listen sympathetically assuming that he hardly needed to embellish on accounts that seemed pretty credible, if extreme. The fact that R was never satisfied to share one bottle of red wine, insisting on ordering another and another, and additionally was given to imbibing endless glasses of Long Island iced tea, daring co-drinkers to keep up with them, did not seem to lower the veracity of his accounts. Picture, then, R's desperation when he approached me with a tale of woe that could only arouse my deepest indignation. As R told it, he'd been in quite a nice bar, a stone's throw from the Hamilton Hotel, on the main road through Itaewon. Definitely not a room salon or business club where ripoffs were inevitable and the hostesses were on hand to extract amazing sums from wealthy customers. This bar was, well, a bar run by a reasonably nice-talking woman in her 30s who seemed almost trustworthy. Oh yes, the bar was staffed, as it were, by a half-dozen women, also in their 30s, but they seemed pretty reliable. As R told it, he'd been making nice small talk with all of them gathered politely along the bar, nodding with gentle understanding as R expressed his views on the state of the world, Korea, and his work as a freelance journalist all in the knowing tones of the man of the world he believed that he was. 
As the conversation got friendlier and friendlier, R waxed progressively generous, buying glasses and half bottles and maybe a bottle or two for all the ladies along the bar. What else was a gentleman to do? And when it came time to sign the bill, so confident was he that he had lost, oh, a couple of hundred thousand won, that he didn't even look at the numbers on the bottom of the bill before cabbing home to his pregnant wife and son. The wife no more outraged than usual by his advanced inebriation at the late, in the late hour. Imagine R's shock, hours later, in the cold light of a hungover morning after, when he expected the credit card receipt that he'd happily sign and saw an unseemly number of zeros after the initial two. That is, two million one. Approximately two thousand dollars at the rates at the time. No way could he ever let Mrs. R. see that receipt. But how could he avoid the day of reckoning when he knew how closely she scrutinized the credit card bills, interrogating him about every suspicious item, every stolen moment? Convinced that some of them covered not only the price of the drinks, but the fee for snuggling with a hostess in one of those darkly lit little side rooms whence springs out most of, most of such an establishment's income. There had to be a way out, and R believed he had the solution. His tone sounding urgent, confiding, and pleading when he called me later in the day. Could I use my credit card to cover his debt? He would, of course, reimburse me, he assured me, but he had to transfer the bill from his car to mine just to hide the extent of the damage. He would, he said, finesse the whole deal in a return visit with me to the bar that night. He'd get the lady who seemed to be in charge, call her the madam, to cancel the bill on his card. I'd sign for the total, and then he'd scrounge up the cash, eventually for me. Right. I wanted to help, but had about as little confidence as did his wife on ours bona fides. I would, however, glad, gladly go with him to the bar and see what on earth R had done to rack up such a huge bill. In righteous wrath, we trooped into the bar the next evening, where we found the charming madam waiting, awaiting us, crying to be just as generous with the wines as on R's previous visit. As hostesses at the bar turned to us with wide-eyed derision, we opened our verbal assault, asking how the madam could cheat an innocent, impoverished foreigner with such cynical ease, leaving him to have to make up a story for his pregnant wife and child, pleading with friends for help while dreading the prospect of returning home. I pulled out all the stops. I would notify the police across the street. I would go to the National Korean National Tourism Organization. There were lots of options. Just about anything as far as I was concerned. Except R's bright idea of transferring the bill to my credit card. The madam, slim and trim, fashionably attired, looked very svelte, Looked, looked every svelte inch a responsible office lady or the well-to-do housewife of an up-and-coming executive, which indeed she may have been, stood up staunchly to all imaginable rants. She was unmoved as one of the bar hostesses who asked sensibly enough, if you don't want to pay for the wine, why did you buy it? No one seemed to see the slightest reason why any hard-working barkeep would not charge more than a $1,000 for each bottle of fine wine, 
though no one had any idea what kind of wine it was that R had bought other than a generic red. Nothing worked, it seemed, until I began to stress the pregnancy theme. How could R support his wife, son, and soon-to-be-born soon second child on what he made as a freelance journalist when he would have to stare at a credit card of considerably close to $2,000 at the end of the month? All right, the madam said gently, and the first sign of any concession. She would talk to R's wife. We sensed major trouble here. R had options of his own to weigh. Somehow scraping up the dough for the bill, no way from me, no no way from me, but perhaps from a more generous friend, or fessing up to his wife. R said yes. He would call on his ever handy cell phone, explain he was having a little trouble, and could she help overcome a slight misunderstanding and the manager of the restaurant. R was walking a fine line, but he believed he could finesse the problem somehow. Feigning an air of business-like confidence, R talked, his talked to his wife for a moment, then handed over the phone to the madam. The soft undertone of womanly Korean wafted over me. Cor conversation done, the madam told us the wife was on the way. Oh my God. The dreaded image of an extremely angry Korean woman flashed through our minds. Talk about trouble. Here it was. Big time. As a spectator, I was overcome by a friction of curiosity and adventure. An explosion might occur before my very eyes. Hey, this scene was getting interesting. We didn't have to wait long. Our pregnant wife and child lived in a comfortable apartment about two, 20 minutes away. After an anxious wait, Mrs. R walked in, quiet and determined, wearing a conservative skirt and blouse, looking businesslike and reserved. The calm before the storm? She sat down with the madam, not looking at R. Together they talked politely in terms of strictly business. R's wife patted her stomach. The conversation, the two facing one another across the low table by a darkened window, lasted about five minutes. Finally, there were tight-lipped smiles, a few cursory bows, a plight if anticlimactic ending. The madam gave R the paperwork for taking back the bill. R would have to pay only $80 or so for two bottles. She had, of course, made a tidy profit, but not exactly the enormous deal she originally had in mind. R's wife remained entirely calm. She had, she said, explained to the woman that she was pregnant and an argument or unpleasant denouement to this whole scene could hurt the life of the baby in the womb. The madam was all understanding. The bar hostesses turned away with looks of disgust mingled with boredom. R's wife left. So did R. Not, I'm not sure if they went home together. I do know the baby, born five months later, a healthy boy, was fine. Later I heard that R was telling friends he'd cleared up the misunderstanding. He seemed to have forgotten his great idea of using my credit card or my pleas with the madam before appealing to her sense of mercy with the star story of R's pregnant wife. Neither of us, however, would soon forget this great lesson about the quality of mercy in Korean women. In a male-dominated society of wholesale corruption, profligate philandering, and loudmouth carousing, the, the women exercise a power that is sometimes overlooked. Negotiators on great issues of free trade and north-south relations 
might follow the example of the discussion between the madam and R's wife. Would North Korea be persuaded to give up its nukes if those two were the negotiating partners? Perhaps Mrs. R would be just the feisty female Kim Jong-il needs for sunshine to prevail. This is back when Kim Jong-il was still around. If he didn't fall first for the wiles of the madam. Donald Kirk, USA. Thank you for bearing with me. To contribute an essay, send it to info at darksideofsoul.com. Most essays come from the book Outlanders, Tales of Korea, compiled and edited by J. Scott Burgesson, published in 2008.